Hey y'all, Hannah here. After we recorded this episode, the LA Times published the pretty damning results of an investigation into the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Their article discusses the financial relationship between the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and major studios and suggests that there's a history of bribery and tax evasion. Importantly for our episode, for example, the article points out the members of the HFPA were invited to the Parisian set of Emily in Paris and were treated to a, fi- a free stay in a five-star hotel and given private tours of museums, among other things. The LA Times also points out that there are no black members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. We will link it in our episode description. You should check it out. All right, on to the show. Well, here we are. And we want to say a special hello to our one listener who lives in France. We don't know who you are, but we love you. Welcome back to Well, Here We Are, a weekly podcast which explores pop culture, the humanities, and how they matter for our daily lives, distilled into lists of three-ish things. The 2021 Golden Globe Awards are this weekend. And to get you ready for this star-studded virtual event, we're talking about this year's list of nominees and what these nominations might tell us about the priorities of the American film and television industry. Spoiler alert, they tell us something not great. I'm Hannah. And I'm Suzanne. Before we jump into all that, we really want to take a second and say thank you to everyone for their support over the past few weeks as we got our pod up and running. Friends, family, and yes, that one stranger in France, we see you and we appreciate your support. It means everything to us. Made me almost cry a bunch of times over the past couple weeks, so we cannot say enough kind words for your kindness. A special shout out to Suzanne's friend, Jay, who, um, well, she's my friend now too, but she graciously redesigned our logo. And Jay, we promise to share that MeUndies money with you whenever it starts to come through. Any day now. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or if you have an Apple Podcast account, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It sounds patronizing to say five-star review, but I have had it happen in past jobs where people leave a glowing review with a one-star rating. So... Just to clarify, five good, one bad. And finally, if you have any suggestions as to how to make this pod better, please reach out to us via our socials or on our Gmail. Everything is well here pod. But I ask you to remember that, as John Mulaney might say, we are very small and we have no money. We are strong, independent women who also will cry if you are mean to us. All right. A couple of weeks ago, when the Hollywood Foreign Press Association announced the 2021 Golden Globe nominees, I messaged Suzanne and asked her, should we talk about this? And you looked at the nominees and your response came through almost immediately. I, I looked at the nominees and my first thought, I immediately thought of uh, a book by the author Ijomo, Ijoma Aluo, uh, and it was called Mediocre. And then I responded to you and I said, yes, we should talk about these nominees. And I want to talk about the celebration of white mediocrity by the film and television industry. And I thought that sounded really fun. So that's what we're doing. Just a nice, light, completely low-stakes conversation. No one on the internet will get mad at us for this conversation. (laughs) Suzanne is going to be taking the lead today because her master's degree is in film and television studies. I know absolutely nothing about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association or why we should care about their opinions. The only thing I did to prepare for this episode was to watch a bunch of movies. I do it for the love of the podcast. You can thank me later. Suzanne is going to share three-ish ways the Golden Globes nominees illustrate the film and television industry's centering of whiteness, and then we're going to have a discussion about what this means for inside and outside the film and television industry and what we can do about it. 
So Suzanne, why don't you kick us off here? Other than an opportunity for me to watch Ricky Gervais get drunk, what even are the Golden Globes? That is a great question. What even are the Golden Globes? Uh, the Golden Globe Awards, and yes, I am pulling this straight from Wikipedia, are accolades bestowed by the members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. And if you are thinking, who is the Hollywood Foreign Press Association? I promise we will get there. The Golden Globes are unique in terms of American film awards in that they recognize, they purport to recognize excellence. I am putting quotes around the word excellence in film and television, whereas other prestige awards in American film and television reward usually one or the other. Much like the Academy Awards, has a reputation for the type of films that they acknowledge and and celebrate, the Golden Globes does too. They, for example, rarely reward the same television show with accolades twice. The last show to win the best comedy two years in a row was Glee. And that was back in 2009-2010. Do you guys remember Glee? It's It's been a while. Their operating principle appears to be the more chaos the better. It seems to them that it's just an honor to be a part of the conversation. Uh, But every year we look at the award nominations and we sigh and we say or we think, well, the Globes are going to globe. This is just what they do. This is just who they are. So for this episode, I basically wanted to approach it like I would if I were writing a dissertation about the ubiquity of whiteness in the Golden Globe nominations. Uh, But this is a 40-minute podcast we hope not maybe maybe uh not a fifteen thousand word dissertation so obviously it's going to kind of skate above the surface to a certain degree it's going to be a little different but i think that's okay i think this will hopefully be a good entry point into the conversation so at the start of this exercise we are already light years ahead of where hannah and i were when we started our (laughs) dissertations because we already have a data set We know what our data set is. It's the 2021 Golden Globe nominations. Maybe a little bit in light of the recent past of Golden Globe nominations. Now that we have our data set, we need to first start by making observations. This is just a side note, but if you and I ever have a conversation in real life and you say to me, oh, I loved this television show or I loved this film, what do you think of it? I will almost immediately say in response, well, what did you think of it? Because I think a lot of times people think that as a film and television studies student, my job is to tell you if something is good or something is bad. And that's not my role. That's That would make me a terrible, boring person if I just pronounced what people should like and what people shouldn't like. I'm a lot more interested in the conversation and asking questions and making observations about it. So we have our list of nominees We need to make some observations. These are things that stood out to me within this data set as I first read over the nominees. It is entirely possible that if you were to look at this list of nominees, you would come up with a separate list of observations, and that would have informed your conclusions about the Golden Globe nominations. So here are some things that I noticed. Emily in Paris, a Netflix series about a young influencer who achieves pretty remarkably, a lot of fame in Paris, was nominated for two awards. I May Destroy You. Hannah, I have talked to you about I May Destroy You so many times. I May Destroy You was shockingly nominated for no awards. The Prom, 
a musical directed, speaking of Glee, by Glee creator Ryan Murphy was nominated for two awards. Most notably, James Corden was nominated for Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical. Minari is nominated in Best Foreign Language Film. Music, a film co-written and directed by Sia. Yes, I'm going to swing on a chandelier Sia. Co-wrote and directed music. That movie was nominated for two awards. And the top three nominees across all categories are Mink, a movie about the writer of Citizen Kane, directed by David Fincher, The Trial of the Chicago Seven, a film written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, and The Crown, a film about the white monarchy of Britain. Her television show. Television show. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, the horror. (laughs) (laughs) I look at all these things. The first pattern I noticed was, oh yeah, it's business as usual for these awards. This is what the Golden Globe does. They love to create chaos. This is actually something that Kevin Fallon, senior entertainment reporter for the Daily Beast said. He said that the Golden Globes are extremely chaotic. The best shows and movies of the year are snubbed. Terrible TV series are nominated. Movies you didn't know existed now have globe nods. Nature is healing. This is part of what the Golden Globes loves to do. Their guiding principle is complete and total chaos. This is their shtick. I I just want to say, read the room, Golden Globes. I'm sorry. I know we haven't gotten into it yet, but there is enough chaos. They didn't ask for my opinion, but I'm giving it anyway. There, there's so much chaos happening right now. Can we just have, can we just have one thing? Yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable because even though, and we're going to talk about I May Destroy You because I will not shut up about this show until everyone has seen it. I May Destroy You was on most critics' best television of 2020 list. Most people said it was the best show of 2020. And these same critics kind of knew that it would be ignored by the Golden Globes. They suspected it. (laughs) They thought it was going to happen because it's not the kind of show the Golden Globes enjoys giving awards to. And that is complete and total bad things for the film and television (laughs) industry. And they know it. They know it. And it's a little ridiculous that we let them get away with this every year. It's rude. We ride at dawn. (laughs) (laughs) so we have our data the our data set rather the 2021 golden globe nominations we have made some observations and by we i am using the royal we now we have to analyze those observations and speak to what those patterns could possibly indicate or what they could be pointing towards so this is the part in the dissertation process when one develops their thesis And this is often why you have scholars in the film and television studies sphere, or probably any sphere, that can observe the same piece of content, and they will come to wildly different conclusions about that content, because they are observing different aspects of the data, and they have connected distinct patterns. This is in large part because of our interests as researchers, our our biases as researchers, our privilege as researchers, that is all going to inform the patterns that we notice. Now, for our purposes, I had a lot of help in observing these patterns and making connections. If you recall from Hannah, she said that she asked me if I wanted to talk about it, 
and I immediately said, yes, and this is what I want to talk about. It's because I had help. My aide in this is Ijoma Oluo, uh, a writer, a Seattle artist, writer, activist. She wrote this book called Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. So my analysis of the pattern and, de- and development of a thesis in the Golden Globe nominees owes everything to her scholarship. And I would highly recommend you read the book. We will be listing the book in the description of this podcast. It is well worth your time. And Ijoma Aluo does a tremendous job in taking a really dense, intense topic and making it incredibly readable. And it's around seven different thematic case studies. And through these case studies, she demonstrates how absolutely central to the American story is a commitment to white mediocrity, particularly white male mediocrity is what she is highlighting specifically. She traces this throughout the NFL. She traces this throughout the American political system. She traces this. The first chapter is about the development of the Wild West myth of the conquering cowboy at the expense of Native populations. So she traces this throughout seven different kind of spheres. In the introduction to her book, she talks about how this veneration of white male mediocrity is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. It touches every sphere, every industry, every corner of America. America was built on it. And her challenges for people, for particularly white people like Hannah and myself and and probably you who, who are listening to this, white people who fancy themselves allies. It is our responsibility, or she challenges us to notice and uproot this veneration of whiteness in whatever our sphere of influence might be. We have our data set. We have made observations. We've noticed a pattern. Now we create a thesis statement. So this is our thesis statement today. And it's our podcast, so you can't tell us it's wrong. This is our thesis statement. The 2020 Except you can in the comments. <laughs> you can, but again, we are small and have no money. The 2021 Golden Globe nominations are reflective of the film and television industry's commitment to white mediocrity. Are they also a reflection of other values and standards? Yes. Are they also a reflection of celebration of good art? Yes. But for today, we just want to focus on the way that these nominations are reflective of the film and television industry's commitment to white mediocrity. If you want to know more, we will have references to several resources in the description. And and we really do encourage as many jokes as I'm making about all of our opinions are correct. We do really want to encourage a dialogue and, and a feedback about this topic. Also, her book specifically is addressing the, the violence of white male mediocrity. But ladies, we have a part <laughs> in this too, and we're going to talk about it. Today's list of three-ish things then are three ways that I see in the Golden Globe nominations a commitment from the film and television industry to white mediocrity. And Hannah, we probably should have talked about the fact that I'm trying to get a job in the film and television industry. (laughs) Aaron Sorkin, if you are listening to this, I love your products. I too love your products. And I really do think I would be an attribute in a writer's room, despite the fact that I I am going to talk about you. And I'm not sorry. So we have attribute of mediocrity the first. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association, I told you we would get back to them. Their first priority is for and to the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. 
their main concern is, is celebrating and looking out for the reputation of their organization. It's not to celebrate great art. I'm sorry, it's just not. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association consists of between 90 and 100 members. If you're saying, Suzanne, why are you being so vague? It's because we don't know how many members there are because they are very secretive about who is on their membership list. Back in 2015, I think it was a Vulture article, kind of went through all the archives of announcements that different people had been added to the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and put together a probable list of who was a part of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. And that is just ridiculous that that is how we have to figure out who is a part of this organization. Why do they do that? Do we know? Yeah, I think they, it builds prestige. It builds this air of mystery, sexy. And maybe they don't want their, the members of their organization to be harassed or I don't know. It's, it's just built into the fabric that they don't They're want a to secret society about. like the skulls. Yep, they are a secret society like the skulls. And when okay. has a secret society ever led us wrong? That's my question. Uh, never in human history. So the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, it was formed in the 1940s with the specific per- purpose. This is their purpose to, quote, formalize their relationship with the studios and facilitate their work of interviewing movie stars and film directors for publications around the world. The members of the Hollywood Foreign Press write for non-American newspapers, but they are all based in California. So I'm quoting here from an article by Caroline Framke that traces the history of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. And she writes that, quote, basically foreign journalists in Southern California weren't getting the same attention as local journalists, and they definitely weren't getting the access to movie stars and film directors that they wanted. So the Hollywood Foreign Press Association was like, look, We are not getting the same treatment or attention paid to us by these movie studios. Let's put together an organization. And what do movie people like more than anything else? They like getting awards. So we're going to create an awards show that forces people to talk to us because our interest is in boosting the reputation of us. How do they get people to care about that? I mean, I know everyone loves awards. I myself like an award. Never gotten one, but I would really like to. Um, but if like you and I and all our friends get together and make an award, like who, who cares? How do they make people care? I guess is my question. Is well, it just I, because they're press? I, w- I would say that a lot of it is press. And then okay. their, their event built, started really small. It started as a luncheon. Uh, ah, okay. 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 And, so it and, wasn't just like they made this thing and it, people were like, oh, give me it. It, it took a while. Okay. Yeah, it, it took a while. It wasn't okay. always, it wasn't always the drunk Academy Awards as we, as we have come to know. As we, no, and love. Over the past 20 years or so, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association has increasingly been criticized for how easily swayed certain members appear to be by the wooing and praise given to them by studios, production companies, and actors. In 2014, former Hollywood Foreign Press Association President Philip Burke revealed in his memoir that Nicole Kidman, but not her co-star Dustin Hoffman, did an interview for the gangster movie Billy Bathgate and that it actually paid off in a nomination. That's right. According to the former president of the HFPA, Kidman's nomination and Hoffman's lack of one for the movie Billy Bathgate was directly related to which person was willing to give an interview to members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. 
Kevin Fallon, the again, the senior reporter of the Daily Beast, refers to this as the Golden Globes, quote, barely veiled star fetish. They just are easily swayed because, again, it's about boosting the reputation of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and its journalists. So when the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is accused of favoritism or racism or snubbing the most deserving performances, they don't really care. They know the power they hold. They know studios and production companies will continue to court them. And in my opinion, they ascribe to the philosophy that the more they're talked about, the better they are off. So what I'm hearing is the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is negging us. Yes. Would you say that's... Everyone is negging us. (laughs) I didn't set out to make a podcast about negging, but uh, here we are. Here we Um, are in every episode. (laughs) They have no motivation to stop being racist. Is that what you're saying? I would say that they do not have a motivation to stop being racist until they see that actors, directors, and studios who they are courting the attention of no longer reward their racism. But a studio just produced Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah. And the Golden Globe Globe nominations rewarded Hillbilly Elegy with a Best Actors nomination for Glenn Close. So... I, as much as we want to say that the film and television industry has turned a corner with checking its racism at the door, it really is a a symbiotic relationship between these two entities. Mm -hmm. The Hollywood Foreign Mm -hmm. Press Association will continue to reward Hillbilly Elegy, and the studios will continue to create Hillbilly Elegy because they know the Golden Globes is going to reward it. That's my pessimistic view. And do you think that there's like 90 and 100 people sitting between 90 and 100 people sitting in a boardroom, like twirling their mustaches like villains saying, how can we create chaos? Or do you think it's just like, well, we're going to do these things and let the chips fall where they will? Like, do you think it's intentional, like actively trying to stir the pot? Or do you think they just are doing they just do what they do? You know how whenever there's a big trend in our culture that becomes very popular Let's say, for example, TikTok, right? There are people that just don't enjoy TikTok because they don't want to be on TikTok. They're like, I have too many apps. I've learned too many new things. I don't want to do it. And then there are other people that take great pleasure and pride in telling you that they will not participate in TikTok. I am setting myself apart from this thing because I think differently. I think a little bit of what's going on with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is that they like to reward film and television that is not necessarily the most talked about. They like kind of being the hipsters of the film and television industry with who they give accolades to. And sometimes this is kind of cool because it means that A creator like Rachel Bloom, who created the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is on the network The CW, which is a network that the Emmys kind of loathes, it means that she gets an award for Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical. And it was Mm -hmm. incredibly well-deserved. And it probably will, because she is still not an incredibly well-known actress, it's probably going to do a lot to open doors and opportunities for her and what she creates going forward. And so I I think there is a little bit of this hipsterism that is happening, but I think they also see that there's this buzz that is around 
awarding often overlooked pieces of media. And that sometimes doing that leads to praise for the way that they are able to discover these hidden gems. Okay. All right. Attribute of mediocrity, the second. White people, you just gotta try. People of color, please be brilliant. And even if you're brilliant, it still might not be enough. This is obviously related to the first point. We kind of touched on this with the show I May Destroy You. So I'm just going to briefly touch on this here. But doing something kind of okay and knowing that a lot of people are still going to watch it seems to be enough if you're a white person in the eyes of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. This move by the HFPA will be criticized, however, when it is in blatant contrast to people of color, particularly women of color, excelling at what they do and still being denied recognition. So the comparison that everyone has been making is between the limited series show created, written, starred in by Michaela Cole, I May Destroy You, and Emily in Paris, starring Lily Collins. And the reason why these two are are being compared is because on a subject matter level, they have some similarities. But Emily, Emily, the character from Emily in Paris, is mediocre at best at everything she does. She is supposed to be this influencer. She is a bad influencer. If you have seen Emily in Paris, you know these photos that she is uploading to Instagram are bad. She is a bad influencer. Michaela Cole's character in I May Destroy You, Arabella, she also becomes an influencer of sorts. And there's this really interesting conversation in the series about this parasocial relationship and the beauty of that and the potential harm that that can do. And when is it healthy to use that as an outlet? And when does one need to kind of step away? Emily from Emily in Paris is supposed to be this feminist anti-sexism icon come over from America to teach all these Parisians that just want to have sex all the time about respecting women. She's really bad at talking about sexism. She doesn't know what the hell she's saying. I May Destroy You is all about what this means, what the relationship between consent and and sexism and the way we can perpetuate these systems of oppression. It's it's that's the entire conversation that it's having. And it it does it excellently and it does it in a way that even though that was a huge part of my research for my dissertation completely blew my mind. Those two pieces of media have been have been compared a lot, it's not an entirely fair comparison because they would have been awarded in completely different categories. Emily in Paris was nominated for Best Comedy or Musical. I May Destroy You would have been nominated for Best Limited Series, and it and it wasn't. Uh, I mean, I still think it's unacceptable. I haven't seen either one, but just based on what, what you're saying to me right now, the fact that they would have been nominated in different categories means nothing to me. Yeah, it, it almost makes it more egregious, I think. <laughs> so the reason why I think this keeps happening is is I just think that we as as a culture, but the American film and television industry, we award whiteness differently than we award those who are we do not identify as white. We award whiteness by their potential and their effort. And to criticize that when that effort falters is considered mean because they tried so hard. James Corden, he acted his little heart out doing a 
put on vaguely Southern gay vocal affectation in the prom. But he cried, damn it. He tried so hard. I didn't even know he was supposed to be Southern. <laughs> I don't think he was supposed to be Southern. Okay. But you know what? This did bring me strange comfort. Whenever you ask British actors who did the worst British accent of all time, they all say Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. <laughs> no, I'll never believe that. Never. But I will forever be comforted by the fact that we now have James Corden doing an American accent because it is maybe one of the worst things I've ever heard. So, yes, he was, you know, he was the weakest part of that movie, but he tried so hard. And so doesn't he deserve a Best Actor nomination because he tried so hard? Yes, Hillbilly Elegy was terrible. But Glenn Close, she was kind of the best part in a pretty terrible movie. So shouldn't we... Shouldn't we reward the fact that she tried and acted so hard in that movie? And the Golden Globe says, yes, yes, we should. But the standards shift dramatically for artists of color, particularly women of color. Oh, your show was on the list of best 2020 television shows almost universally. But I mean, is it a drama or is it a comedy? How are we supposed to award this in a... There aren't really any celebrities in it that we're particularly interested in getting attention from. So, like, better luck next time, Michaela Cole. And so white people are getting participation trophies. That's what I'm getting from this. The Golden Globes are white people participation trophies. We showed up. We played our game. Give me a trophy. Yeah, and, and I don't think this means that I don't think James Corden is going to win Best Actor. I don't think Glenn Close is going to win Best Actor. That's this not going to podcast happen. may age out of itself in one week's time. <laughs> well, we're going to find out. But I, I, don't think yeah. that, I don't think they're going to win. And, like, I watched Mank. Amanda Seyfried is nominated for Best Supporting Actress in a Dramatic Role. She was absolutely the best part of that movie. She absolutely deserved that nomination. So I'm not saying that any time a white person <laughs> is nominated that they didn't deserve the nomination. I just, oh my gosh, that is not what I am saying. But what I am saying is that like, you and I were talking about this and I think you use the word, I think you use the phrase white fragility, that there is this, mm-hmm. if, if these white artists try really hard and they didn't quite hit the mark, shouldn't we at least award them with a nomination? Because who's it really going to harm? And I mean, <laughs> uh, it seems like I don't I don't know where we're going to end up in this conversation, but who who it really harms is actually going to be a lot of people. That's that's just my prediction. But they don't care. Chaos. Sorry. Go on. Maximum chaos. I don't really know if this is the place to have this conversation, but I'm just going to like put this here and we can maybe come back to it later. So the movie Mink is a story about Howard Mankiewicz, who is the screenwriter for the film that is considered by many to be the best American film ever created, Citizen Kane. Never seen it. Sorry. Never seen it. Bad film student. But I, but I might actually watch it now because I kind of want to close the loop on this, this narrative. So in, in her book, Mediocre, Aluo writes in the chapter about women in the workplace She writes, every white man in business is pure potential. But what are women worth? What would it look like to value us and our potential? What is the risk of destroying our careers before they even start? And for all of this conversation about white mediocrity, there's this other there's this other side 
of it, which is the tortured white male genius that any level of abuse should be tolerated because we need to all kowtow to this white male genius. And then the movie Mank, this is not a spoiler, but just like a lot of biopics do, at the very end of the movie, they give like a four sentence, this is what happened to Howard Minkowitz after this moment. And it, it talks about how Citizen Kane was pretty much one of the last movies he ever wrote. He died at the age of 55 due to significant complications with, with blood poisoning due to, due to alcoholism. And the saddest part about this is that you really get the sense in the movie that he thought that his reliance on alcohol is what made him a good artist. That's just pretty devastating. And so it, it has these three lines. The last line says he was 55. Then the rest of the text falls away and it just centers the text, he was 55. And the conceit of that seems to be like, look at this tragedy. This man died so young. He left this world with all of his genius so young. There was so much potential in those remaining, what should have been 20, 30 years and we are left with nothing. Exactly. But the movie does not make any mention of what happened to Marion Davies, who is the part that Amanda Seyfried plays, who was an actress. She was a silent film actress and then kind of transitioned into the talkies. There is no mention of what Citizen Kane did to her career. She didn't even act in Citizen Kane. But the main female character in Citizen Kane, Susanna Grant, I think the character's name is, is portrayed as this blonde kind of simpering actress who kowtows to the titular character's demands and he uses his power and influence to try to elevate her in the in the film industry despite her lack of talent and everybody watched Citizen Kane and said oh this is based on Marion Davies Mm. and it actually got film critics to re-look at her work and be like, oh, yeah, I mean, now that this movie mentions it, she's actually not that talented. To the point where in the 1960s, when she actually passed away, in her obituary, people talked about how, you know, she wasn't actually that good of an actress. She was never the brightest star, but she was just really famous because her much older boyfriend promoted her wildly in Hollywood. And, and this is completely revisionist history about what and who she was in the film industry. And and this movie comes out, everyone decides, oh, this is her. And now that this movie mentions it, she's actually not that talented. And they kind of write her off as just this insipid woman. It's not until the 1970s uh, that there is a New Yorker film critic, Pauline Kael, I think her name is, who goes back and rewatches all of Marion Davies' work that she can get, that she can get her hands on and is like, We've all been very wrong about Marion Davies. She was a very talented actress. And the film industry turned on her because they decided that this character that was rumored to have been based on her was a hack. Therefore, she must have been a hack as well. And so I see the end of this movie. I see I see that text. He was only 55. And there is no mention of what this movie did to Marion Davies' career. And that huh. is just... It's always the great tragedy of the white male auteur. There is no consideration given to what happens to the to women's the people that he leaves in his wake. Exactly. And that was everything 
if you've read Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow, which details his investigation into the Harvey Weinstein abuse scandal, the number of times he says in this book, I interviewed this person, she had this role for Miramax, or she had this role working for Harvey Weinstein, she has since left the television industry, or she has since left the film industry. Mm -hmm. He says Mm -hmm. that at least half a dozen times. And that whole thing is like, oh, what the great tragedy of Harvey Weinstein's genius, that, that he was this like mad genius. And now because he's continually over decades perpetuated the system of abuse that we don't get his art anymore. I'm sorry. Screw that guy. I don't care about that guy. What I care about is all the women that are in this book that it says they have since left the film industry because of his abuse. And we don't know their names. And those stories apparently don't matter. And so... That is that is probably not what I was supposed to take away from it. <laughs> <laughs> but it is what you took away, and that's okay. This brings us to attribute of mediocrity, the third. And the question for this attribute is, who is diversity for, and who gets to define the terms of representation? So for this attribute of mediocrity, the movies that are really relevant to this, I mean, there's a lot of them, but the movies that are really relevant to this is The Prom, Music, Minari. And so I do want to acknowledge that at first blush, if you look at the 2021 list of Golden Globe nominees, you're going to be like, Suzanne, what are you talking about? There are very clear signs of apparent diversity in the Golden Globe nominees. What you've done is you've picked a couple of faulty examples, and now you are using that to make your entire point. And I would say proof texting is what academia does, bitches. And so that's <laughs> what we're doing. No, that is not actually what I am saying. What I am saying is that I think once you look a little deeper, there are issues with some of that apparent diversity that we are supposed to be celebrating. So what are some of those examples of apparent diversity? Well, three of the five people nominated for best director are women. Two of those people are women of color, including the absolute queen, Regina King. Music is a film about a neurodiverse young girl, and that has been nominated for two awards. When you go a little deeper, you see that the two men nominated for Best Director are David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin, two of these white male auteur geniuses, whereas the women that are nominated This is their very first nomination. This is Regina King's first film. They're up against some heavyweights, which seems to maybe tilt the nomination away from their favor. And you look at Aaron Sorkin's film that he's nominated for, and he gets a nomination for a movie that every single person I've talked to about that movie seems to say some version of, well, yeah, I mean, it's an Aaron Sorkin movie. Yep, that's what I said. (laughs) Yep, we just let Aaron be Aaron. We just let Aaron do Aaron. And we're like, you know what? Good on you, buddy. You're just like firmly in your wheelhouse. He stays in his lane. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I like it. What was I'm he- not saying he should win Golden Globes here. Okay. I'm saying I enjoy his products. What did you notice about, because you noticed a comparison between that he plucked lines of dialogue from the West Wing. Oh yeah. He, he just lifted lines straight out of the West Wing. And I was like, Uh, I don't know how you can be a writer for a show as famous as The West Wing and then not think that we're not going to notice that. It's rude and disrespectful. I wonder, like, do you think he, A, did it on purpose to be little Easter eggs for the West Wing audience? Or do you think he maybe didn't remember that he had written those lines before? 
I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be inside the mind of Aaron Sorkin. Oh, let's not go down that dark <laughs> hole. And then you look at the three women who are nominated, and they are actually, between those three nominations, they are now officially the sixth, the seventh, and the eighth woman woman to ever be nominated by the Golden Globes for Best Director. All right. I take your point. And, and this was an award series that was, need I remind you, started in the 1940s. And we are now at the point where we are just nominating the sixth, seventh, and eighth woman for Best Director. And then you look at this sto- this movie, Music, which is about an autistic girl, and you learn, oh, the actress who plays her is not autistic. And there are many individuals with who have autism who have expressed concerns about the way in which autism has been depicted in the film. And then you find that when Sia, again, I'm going to swing from my chandelier, Sia, the co-writer and director of this film, when she heard of these concerns, she responded to people with autism that they should just be thankful that they were being represented in the movie. And then another piece of this diversity that has to be talked about is that while America does not have a national language, despite what some people think English is not the national language of the United States of America, the HFPA has determined that English is the national language of American film. And this year we can see that in Minari's nomination. Minari is a film directed by Lee Isaac Chung, who is an American filmmaker of South Korean descent. He was born in Colorado. His film Minari tells the story of a family moving from South Korea to the U.S. to try to get their version of the American dream. He is an American. He is an American director. This is a story about America. It was not eligible to be considered for Best Picture because 50% of the dialogue or more was in a language other than English. This is the exact same thing that happened to The Farewell last year, which also had to be nominated in Best Foreign Language Film. It was also directed by an American film director. A majority of the dialogue was in Chinese, so it was disqualified from consider. It wasn't even considered for Best Picture. We have decided, apparently, or the Golden Globes has decided, apparently, that there is one language that an American film can be in, and that language is English. And so when you're saying that you are champion diversity, you are championing the celebration of other cultures, but you have limited what we define as American, it tells me that you're not actually interested in the best American films. And even when these films are nominated, even when The Farewell is nominated, even though Minari is nominated, they're largely shut out of all acting categories. And Kevin Fallon, again, senior reporter for The Daily Beast, he's noted that this is exactly what happened with Parasite. This is exactly what happened with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. The cast of these films, even when they are acknowledged by award groups like the Golden Globes or the Academy Awards, looking at you, Academy Awards, giving nobody in the cast of Parasite an acting nomination, the acting behind these films is entirely ignored. The question I am asking is, if you nominate a film that is praised for being, quote, diverse, and the community that you claim to be representing in that film or television show, by and large rejects your form of representation, then who is this representation for? It leads me to believe that you don't actually care about 
authentic representation. What you care about is tokenizing diverse populations for your own capitalist benefit. If the community that you are supposedly representing says this is not representation and you say you should be thankful, then that is not, it is not representation. (laughs) It is insulting. Oh, it is very insulting. And if you continue to celebrate films with diverse casts as saying that they are the best in the in the field, but you continually deny recognitions to the actors and actresses that are acting in those films, what are we saying about what we value in acting performances? Again, spoiler alert, we are saying bad things. We are saying bad things about what we value. There we have it. This is an introductory analysis to the celebration of white mediocrity and the Golden Globes. (laughs) Thank you for joining me on this journey. I'm not saying that all white people that were nominated did not deserve awards. I'm I'm not saying that. But if you find me a single truly funny thing that Lily Collins' character said in Emily in Paris, I will just, I will eat my hat. I'm not wearing the hat. (laughs) I beg you. To find me a single truly funny thing that that character said or did because it does not exist and and we all pretend and and hannah this is this was actually kind of the beginning part of our conversation you asked me like should we even care about the golden globe nominees like why do why do we care about this right and and i would say to that we all pretend we don't care but we seem to know that these awards matter because we all say we don't care about the golden globes we all say we don't care about the about the Academy Awards, but when a film that we think is deserving of that acknowledgement or a television show we think is deserving of that acknowledgement gets denied, we seem to know intrinsically that they matter in some way. Streaming platforms and public libraries will curate watch lists based on nominees and winners. You can go into Netflix search right now and you can search 2021 Golden Globe nominees and it's going to pull up all of those lists for you. For me, that is an entire category of films that it is recommending to me. We use awards and we use nominations and we use winners to make our individual must-watch lists. I know that this is true because I haven't watched the Academy Awards in, I, I don't remember the last time I watched them. And I say that I don't care about them, but I also know that the last movie that I saw in theaters was Parasite. And I saw it with you because it won the Academy Award for Best Picture. That was 11 months ago, the last time I was inside a movie theater, RIP. I say that they don't matter to me, but obviously that is a lie. They do matter. They do add prestige. They do add value. And and for these, for young artists, artists that don't yet have a foothold in the industry, it does matter a lot. It does matter a lot that they get these these nominations and, and that they potentially win. It goes a lot to forwarding their career. So you might say you don't care, but they they do actually have ripple effects and they do impact how we consume content. The truth is, though, that the HFPA is an organization made up of about 90 people and they have an undue amount of influence in controlling the conversation around film and TV. And it's Tear it down! A- <laughs> Eat the rich! <laughs> Hannah, you and I should just become members of the HFPA. We should form our own organization. We'll come up with a name. Well, here we are. Awards. No, we're going to have to workshop this. Yeah, we're going to have to (laughs) workshop this. And we can't currently have anybody over for a luncheon. But I think we can start laying the foundation right now. I think it would be a mistake for us to, to look at the list of nominees, see the evidence of white mediocrity abound, 
see this celebration of just mediocre art. And it would be to the detriment of, of people that are deserving. It would be a detriment to these artists of color and creators of color. If we simply said, look, I'm not a member of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. You've already said it. They always choose chaos. The globes are going to globe. And to that, I would say, no, the globes are going to globe until we tell the globes that's not how you globe. Okay. (laughs) The reason Emily in Paris and Ratched, which I haven't even mentioned, but the reason why Emily in Paris and Ratched were nominated is because we watched them. The reason Emily in Paris was was nominated was because until Bridgerton, it was the number one most streamed show on Netflix. And that is why the Golden Globes nominated them. Parasite does not win the Academy Award last year for Best Picture if there was not this groundswell of film critics and film watchers demanding people watch that movie. So if you're saying, I hate this, I hate that the Golden Globes chooses mediocrity, I hate that they, in the age of COVID, just continually choose chaos, well, then I would say you need to to demand that people put eyes on the film and TV that you want their eyes to be on. Instead of making your New Year's resolution to watch the top 100 films from the American Film Institute or all those films that have won the best picture in the past 20 years, watch 10 films by women directors or watch 10 films by queer directors or look up Regina King's IMDb page because like I said, she is the best and watch through her IMDb page or start simply by correcting your friends and family when they refer to an actor as that Asian actor. Say, no, that Asian actor has a name. Here's everything that is in their list. Correct them, correct the conversation and tell the globes, this is not how we want a globe because, because you might not care, but these things do matter. Yeah, I think that's a really good point uh, when we start to think about these problems that sometimes we feel like either these problems are not problems or that this problem is so big that there's nothing that I, an individual can do about it. But to think that, to think about our consumption habits and to think about our hobbies and the way we approach them and um, how complacent we are with the fact that, you know, most of the most of the podcasts that I listen to are hosted by majority white people. What can I do to correct that in my own life? And I think this goes for a lot of, field, of fields that we're interested in. And I would urge myself <laughs> and everybody to consider the ways in which uh, white men and white women are centered in our profession and our hobbies. It may not be obvious, Or it may be so obvious that sometimes we can't believe we never noticed it before. For example, rom-coms with straight white people are mainstream and they air on ABC and TBS, whereas rom-coms with black people are classified as special interest and they air on BET. Another one of our interests that we will discuss pretty frequently on this podcast is makeup. Makeup releases are formulated for white skin. They are marketed towards white people. These are just a few things that pertain to our interests, and I could go on and on. And I bet that these things pertain to a lot of the things that interest you, too. Things like this are not going to change if we don't make an effort to change them. So think about things that are important to you and support brands that practice those things. If you want to see more diversity in award shows, watch movies with Black, Brown, LGBTQ cast directors and writers. Buy books by these authors. I would say once you watch it, talk about it you need to talk about it because that's another huge thing of citizen kane will always forever be considered one of the best films in american film history and now we have another movie that has also been celebrated that is celebrating citizen kane 
So the adulation <laughs> for this, it's like a cycle of adulation. And if, and if we want to get new films into the discussion, new artists into the discussion, we have to break into that cycle of adulation that, that only centers around a, a few select creators and films. Yeah, let's get a movie in 40 years about the writing of Parasite. Can we get that? I'd like to order one, please. We're not asking anyone to move mountains. I'm not asking you to uproot your life and become a screenwriter and write that that movie about the writing of Parasite. But we are going to ask you to think critically about your consumption habits and whether they reflect your values. And we are going to do the same. Um, yeah, we want to keep talking about this. So let us know if there's anything specific that you'd like to discuss. And let us know... What do you think? What do you find when you investigate these things? You can get involved in the discussion by tweeting at us or commenting on our Instagram, both at wellherepod, or you can email us at wellherepod at gmail.com. Maybe we'll read out your comments in a future episode. Who knows? Make them clever. If you like this episode, go tell your friends about it. And be sure to subscribe so you can hear more of our opinions. And while you're there, you can leave us a rating. Five stars, as I said. Five stars good, one star bad. Five stars. And we think you are a star. So please, please, please. And since we're four episodes in now, maybe consider leaving us a nice review. It would be really helpful. But please don't complain about our voices on the internet. We wouldn't change them even if we could. Until next time, I'm Hannah and I will never watch Emily in Paris. And I'm Suzanne. And so help me God if a single person tweets hashtag not all white people. And well, here we are. Make it evergreen. Evergreen. I see a mother there, a lover and a child I know a war will come and take away their lives